The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. This is from Mr. Woman's Gateless Gate, Case 6. The Buddha holds up a flower. The main case. Long ago, when the world honored one was at Mount Kurkutra to give a talk, he held up a flower before the assembly. At this, everyone remained silent. The venerable Mahakai Shapa alone broke into a smile. The world honored one said, I have the all pervading true Dharma, the incomparable Nirvana, exquisite teaching of formless form. It does not rely on letters and is transmitted outside scriptures. I now hand it to Mahakasha. So we had a one of our seniors who was going to be giving a talk today, but she, at the last minute, uh, got sick and wasn't able to come. I hope you're well if you're listening in, Chike. So I'm pinch hitting. Um, <laughs> and I thought I would look at this koan, which Dogen centers his fascicle on intimate language around. And um, he deals with it in a very wonderful and deep way. And I just want to take up the, the main point of the koan itself. So there are certain stories and, and koans within the Zen tradition that are, in a way, defining. They kind of um, help shape and express, articulate the basic sort of way the Zen tradition speaks of itself, sort of um, describes its, its uh, principles, if you will, its uh, teachings, uh, its history. And this is one of those koans. In this encounter, which is not historical, there's no historical basis to this, but that, in terms of a, a teaching and a practice, is not so important. It is how the Zen tradition talks about the first transmission of the Dharma from the Buddha to the next generation. Um, <clears throat> on Mount Kutakutra, the Vulture Peak. So that place, we went, when some of us went on a pilgrimage to India some years ago, is a place where the Buddha visited many times. He had places that he spent many rainy seasons in, that he gave many talks at, places that he clearly favored for various reasons, and this is one of them. And it's a really remarkable place. It's called Vulture Peak because it sort of looks like a vulture with his arms, wings folded. I was seeing, I sort of thought of it as a promontory in dry land. It's like a the bow of a ship kind of extending out into a valley with mountains on either side. It's quite something. In a sense, in and of itself, it's very simple. We went to the main places of 
pilgrimage in India, where the Buddha was born, where he was enlightened, where his first teachings took place, where he died, and many places in between. And all of those places generally have very large stupas built and multiple stupas, oftentimes representing different Buddhist traditions from different countries, um, usually well-traveled and well-attended, populated, um, sometimes crowded, sometimes quite noisy. And that was pretty much the experience we had at almost all of these places we went. And as we hiked and hiked and hiked, it takes quite a while to get there, and then came out into this, what is fairly small opening, it was completely deserted. There was not a single person there. It was unbelievable. <laughs> and so we sat and did zazen, and <clears throat> I read some from a, one of the Buddhist teachings, and uh, it was quite exquisite. And that as soon as we were preparing to leave, other people started to show up. So it was like we were gifted with this moment. So in the Zen tradition and in other Buddhist traditions, there's sort of very conscious, explicit language around transmission. How, does, how is the Dharma conveyed from one generation to the next? How is it carried forth? Because it's not transmitted through letters, through books, through scriptures, sutras, although we have them in abundance. How, how does it, is it communicated from one generation to the next? What ensures that the transmission or the Dharma that the Buddha realized is continuing to be brought forth into each successive generation? Because if that isn't brought forth, then something else is. And in, in, a, in a very real sense, it's much, much easier to transmit or convey knowledge, information, instructions. That's not difficult. You just write it down, make sure people have a reasonable grasp of it, and there it is. It's really held in, in the page. But the, the Dharma is not like that. It's something that has to be experienced personally, directly. And then because in practice we have a multitude of experiences. I mean, every practitioner through the course of a session, over months and years and decades, if they're practicing sincerely, will have many, many different experiences. Some of them are just, you know, the settling in experiences, the meeting the self experiences, the getting tangled and freeing oneself, different states of meditation, a whole range of insights. But what is transmitted is, is a very particular thing. It's insight into self-nature. Self it's the realization of the nature of oneself and others and things. So it's all-inclusive. It contains the whole multitude. Because those are all of the things we interact with. Which means those are all of the things we get tangled in. We get tangled within ourselves. We seem to get tangled between ourselves. 
and we get tangled in things. Objects, possessions, situations. And so the transmission is the direct experience of what is the nature of self and other and things so that we can be liberated. And so this story, the way it is framed is that the Buddha was at an assembly gathering, as he did hundreds and hundreds of times, held up a flower. And only Makashapa in the whole assembly smiled. And the Buddha said, I have the all-pervading true dharma, incomparable nirvana, exquisite teaching of formless form. Now I give it to Mahakashapa. So did something happen in that very moment? He smiled. The Buddha responded. Had it been happening over many years, throughout all of Mahakashapa's training, it's said that this transmission is like pouring water from one vessel into another. The vessels are different. One is large, one is small, one is round, one is tall. Made of different materials, but the water is exactly the same. In that sense, the water is eternal. It doesn't change. And so how can such an experience be verified? We can't enter into another person's mind and taste what they're tasting when they take a bite of food or <clears throat> when they say that their body is aching to go in and experience the very ache that they're describing. We can't do that. And so what is an intimate encounter? Master Dogen in his intimate language, Pascal says, when this intimate language, or we might think intimate expression, or an in, a direct meeting, when intimate language encounters an intimate person, then the Buddha eye sees the unseen. Intimate action is not known by self or by others. But the intimate self alone knows it. And each intimate other goes beyond understanding. So Shakyamuni Buddha holds up a flower and Mahakashapa smiles. As one old master wrote in a poem, as I see it with the mind of emptiness, it is I myself, this flower held up. And so to thoroughly study this flower, I spoke from the Mountains and River Sutra on Monday night, where Dogen said we should thoroughly study the mountains. To thoroughly study this flower is to deeply study the self. And to study the self, Dogen said, is to ultimately forget the self. Then when that study becomes so intimate, the Buddha eye, the eye that goes beyond our perceiving eye, our visual eye, sees the unseen, sees what can't be seen with the eye. And that's why the intimate, this, that intimate action is not known by the self or by others. It's not known, but it's realized. 
And so a lot of, <laughs> I mean, a lot of what's happening here is, is language and trying to take language, which has a very amazing capacity to express, describe, convey meaning. Using, but based in the recognition of objects, of a seer and a seen, perceiver and a perceived. Someone is tasting something, someone is hearing a sound. Taking that language, is so, which is so embedded in a kind of dualistic framework, and using it to try and express something that is, transcends that duality. In Dadaroshi's commentary on this, in, the, in this koan that shows up in the uh, Dogen Shobagenzo koan collection, he says, if you think the truth of this koan lies in holding up a flower, or twirling it, or smiling, this is not it. So somehow it's not in the flower, but it's not apart from the flower. The Buddha held up a flower. It's not all there. It's not all here. It's not something that exists in and of itself. It's not something that's non-existent. If we want to be free of getting caught continuously in one side or another, in grasping or aversion, in one side of the wall or the other side of the wall, then we have to allow our mind to naturally return to its original state, which is free of those dualities. And so this language is speaking from that very place. When intimate language encounters an intimate person, the Buddha eye sees the unseen. In the Mountains and Rivers Sutra of Dogen, it says mountains and waters, rivers, right now actualize the ancient Buddha expression. Each abiding in its condition unfolds its full potential. So Dogen's teaching on the Mountains and Rivers Sutra is taking up this sense that we have to realize the nature of self and other and things and extending it into what we think of as the inanimate, a mountain, a river. Inanimate in the sense of not having consciousness, not being a living being, not being a human being. And says that they, at this very moment, actualize all that the Buddha's taught, all that is realized, and are actualizing it, which means they're manifesting it, embodying it, and each abides in its condition, in its own state, and in that it unfolds its full potential. It completely fulfills its, its, its completeness. And potential is kind of a tricky word. It's something that we, we use, we think of it, right? That having that we have the capacity, we have Buddha nature, we have the capacity to realize it. 
but it has a sense of we have the potential to do something in the future. We have the potential to realize something at some later point. Which makes sense to us because we've done a lot of things like that. We've engaged in a lot of ambitions and journeys and all kinds of things in which we set out knowing that we have the potential to get to the end of that road, to get to that place, to accomplish that skill, to form that relationship, to get that job, to acquire that possession, whatever it might be. And so we put all of our energy into getting to that place. And naturally, we bring that very same mind into practice. It is a path. There is a beginning. There is a sense of aspiring to something. Right? That's true. That's real, right? That's a, it's actually in the Doshinji Code that, that, uh, that part of being in training is that we will not essentially stagnate. Right? That we will not, which, you know, many people might be thinking at this moment, uh-oh, <laughs> I'm already in trouble. It doesn't mean stagnate in the way that we tend to think, you know, I'm not getting anywhere, I'm not making any progress, but in actually stagnating, which applies, which requires some effort. It means we're trying to not try. We're actually engaged in not engaging. That doesn't really happen too often. I've never, since I've been here, have we ever asked somebody to leave because they <laughs> were verifiably stagnant. <laughs> but so there is a sense of, of movement, of, of moving forward. The very path itself brings that to us. We get that, we, we relate to that. And that in and of itself sets up, a, in a sense, the fundamental tension. Because at the very same time and in every step, you have already arrived. So how is that? And to practice both. To practice within that faith of Buddha nature that, that what you seek has, is not, you, you haven't left it behind. It's not something that happened yesterday that you have to get back to. That's never been true. It's never going to be tomorrow, right? Because that's an idea. It is, can only and has only ever occurred in the present moment. How fortunate you are that that's where you are. <laughs> that you can't actually escape that, even though it seems sometimes that we turn away from it. This mountain, this river, this flower, this mind, this moment unfolds its full potential. In every moment, right now, actualized. And so, in, in, in essence, in practice, we are practicing in every moment just to experience that more intimately. To be that intimate person, having a direct encounter with an intimate expression, of that which is already completely unfolding its potential, 
has unfolded its potential, which means that it continuously abides in its potential. The idea of unfolding is something that we bring into the sense of our development. So Dogen says, because mountains and rivers have been active since before the empty eon, since before the beginning of time, they are alive at this very moment. They have never ceased in their potential because they have been the self since before form arose, their emancipation actualized, because they have never departed from their place. They're always abiding within their form, Dogen said of these mountains. They're always perfectly in accord with the causes and conditions by which they are actualizing right now. And we are that. We are that mountain. If that's so, then why is it that there are so many times when we ourselves and others and objects don't seem alive? Aren't, don't seem to be manifesting their full potential. Don't seem to be intimate, but rather distant. Not alive, but dull. Not spacious and unbounded, but cluttered and tangled. Why? Why in that moment the Buddha raised the flower did Kasho smile? Why did no one else smile? Dogen says, mountains don't lack the characteristics of mountains. How could they? Therefore, they always abide in ease and always walk. Examine in detail the characteristic of this mountain walking. They never lack the characteristics of their mountain. You never lack the characteristics of yourself. A Buddha never lacks the characteristics of a Buddha. So all of the ways in which we are so convinced of our lacking means that in that moment we have a sense of something. We're sensing something. We're experiencing something. And we're interpreting it in a particular way. Which has a lot of consequence. When something is completely abiding when its own being, its own place, its own characteristics, then naturally it's at ease. It doesn't want to be something else. It doesn't want to be somewhere else. It doesn't want to be in another time or another place. It doesn't want to be more. It doesn't want to be less. Because it is fully aware of being fully potent in its characteristics. And we can think of our, in terms of personality traits, we can think in terms of our skills, our life experiences, our facility with language, our sense of humor, our intelligence, how many languages do we speak. I mean, we can think of ourselves in, in, in these sort of list of 
characteristics. And then we can think, well, you know, I could, I'd like to have a little bit more of that, maybe a little less of that. You know, in a way, that's reasonable. There are things we want to develop, skills we want to learn, want to have the capacity to do something. I was listening to a story of a, of a woman who, I just heard a little clip, but she was, had just turned, I guess it was right before she turned 40, and she was riding down the road and some truck flipped or something, and she should have died. The truck came so close to the car and she would have been crushed, but she didn't. She survived that. And then just a week or two later, one of her best friends, who was an avid hiker, went out hiking and never came back. Something happened and she died. And she said those two experiences, and then she turned 40, and she realized this could end at any minute. What, am I, what do I want to do with my life? What do I want to do? So she ended up, she never even camped. <laughs> and she, she developed the aspiration to climb the seven second highest peaks in the world, which is its own thing, right? Not a small thing. <laughs> and she did it. But she talked about that that was her motivation, Right? that she wanted, she realized how close she had come to death, how close death was really all the time. And although she didn't say it, I can't imagine that she reflected on how has she been living? Has she been alive in her life? What might help to sort of bring that full life potential out? She could have come here, too, but <laughs> she would have been ripe. <laughs> Shibiyama, in his commentary, as, at the very end of this commentary, says that he was reading a criticism of this koan, which, again, is a very famous koan in the, in the, uh, in the Zen tradition, not just in the koan traditions, but really across the board. It's really sort of a hallmark, you know, signature of the Zen tradition and the first transmission. And so it it's, has a very sort of august place. And Shibuyama says that he was reading a criticism by, that someone uh, had of Wuman who collected this and said that Wuman saw the koan through cloudy binoculars. He failed to see the exchange of delicate human feelings shining at the back of this story. And Shibuyama says, this is a surprising misunderstanding. What the koan illustrates for us is the truth of the Dharma, seen directly in the Dharma transition through the teacher-disciple unity. And such an ethical question is the beauty of human relationships between teacher and disciple is not what's at issue here. It's not that that doesn't matter. It's not that that's not important. It's just not the heart of what the koan is pointing to. Shibuyama says, Zen points to the fundamental realization from which ethics and human virtues, warmth, love, compassion, kindness, arise. 
so that they can arise completely, fully, unhindered. We realize that fundamental basis so that when we chant to be attached to things as illusion, we understand that every time I attach to something, I am generating an illusion within my mind that there is something that is not complete, there is someone that is not at ease, there is something that is being sought outside. There is grasping at something that has some power that I think I need, that it will bestow to me. There is something that has a power to make me unhappy, that I want to get away from me. And so to realize that fundamental, then our capacity to bring forth that shining compassion and loving kindness and generosity and patience, magnanimity of heart and fearlessness and so on, can come forth. In the commentary, a woman says, and the commentaries, remember, and the poems are always generally pointing back to the main points that the student is trying to realize directly, to ask a probing question. And in that probing question, it helps the student to see more clearly what, what has not yet been clear, clarified to understand. Sometimes the student thinks that they've understood something. Or the teacher, may it may seem that the student understands something. And they may understand it directly. But then the, the question that the commentary of the verse asks helps to bring out the ways in which that's not yet clear. So they work quite nicely that way. And so here, woman asks the question, well, what if in that assembly, the Buddha had held up a flower and Kasho had not smiled. What then? Would the Dharma have been transmitted or not? And of course, this is pointing to what is it that's transmitted? The Buddha said, I have the all-pervading true Dharma, incomparable, incomparable nirvana, exquisite teaching of formless form. That's a whole heap of stuff. <laughs> These words that are being put in the Buddha's mouth. That's why in the beginning of the commentary, a woman says, old Gautama is certainly outrageous <laughs> to say such a thing. But this question of, well, what is it then that's being transmitted? So if, if Kasho hadn't smiled, would there have been no transmission? And then he asks the question very directly. He says, if you say that the true Dharma can be transmitted, then the Buddha is deceiving everyone in the sense that he's giving something to someone. Right? Then it can't be the true Dharma. But if you say that it cannot be transmitted, then why did he say that to Kasho? Why did he say, I, I now hand it over to you? So is it transmitted or not? And to, under, to, to know that directly, we have to understand, we have to directly know that which is being spoken of. If everyone had smiled, then what would have happened? 
This is why Daroshi says it's not about the flower, it's not about the smile. If it was in the smile, then just everybody smile. It's like the old story of somebody who was walking along and they saw a rabbit jump out of its hole, get startled and run, conk its head right into a rock, pass out. And so the person picked up the rabbit, went home and had rabbit stew. And the next day it comes out and just stands right next, next to the stone, waiting for it to happen again. It's called, it's like trying to measure something on a balance, but the pointer is stuck. It's showing you a measurement. It's just not true. Dogen says, mountains walking is just like human walking. Accordingly, don't doubt that mountains walk, even though it doesn't look the same as human walking. So the phrase that mountains walk across water, that eastern mountains walk, is a phrase that's used in the Zen teaching. Mountains walk. Mountains manifest. Mountains come forth. Mountains appear in the world, like holding up a flower. Like giving birth to Buddha nature. But what is this walking? When walking is empty of walking, when you walk without moving your legs, when you walk without destination, without a beginning and end, then walking itself is liberated. There's a practice of not walking. And there's a realization of walking. The Buddha said, when meditating, don't sit in, I am meditating. When letting go, don't sit in, I am letting go. When walking, don't walk in, I am walking. Forget into walking, forget into breathing, forget into the flower. When intimate language meets an intimate person, then the Buddha eye sees the unseen. This intimate person. Intimate means nothing outside, nothing apart. Nothing to get tangled in. In a sense, all relationship in that moment has ceased. So that then when you move forth, when you walk, you, you move forth as one who stands solitary and vast and broad. And then we see that everyone walks and stands and sits solitary. And that's where we meet. Dogen says, although the mountains walk more swiftly than the wind, 
When you're in the mountains, you don't notice it or understand it. It's like standing at the foot of the mountain. You'd like to walk all the way up to the top. You'd like to see the view from the peak, but it's so long. The path disappears into the woods. You don't know if you'll be able to follow it. You don't know what you'll encounter. Other people will tell you what they encountered, but you haven't walked it yet. And so it's easy to feel faint of heart, to think, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I have that potential. I have faith that I have but a nature, but to realize that I am going to have to walk. And I don't know if I can. And then you realize, oh, I'm not walking. I'm not on the path yet. I'm sitting here, imagining, projecting, bringing all of my fantasies, my fears, my concerns, all of which are theoretical. Remember years ago when I was, had left my study of mathematics and the only other thing that I wanted to totally give myself to was my music, which I'd been studying since I was a kid. But it was a little late in the game to really pursue it professionally, even though I you know, practiced really um, a lot for, for many years. And I remember talking to a friend of mine in the city who was a, who was a musician, a professional musician. And I was sort of, you know, having that exact same conversation. It's like, I don't know, you know, it's I'd really like to do this, but gosh, I don't know. And he said, you know, you're standing on this side of this door and you're trying to, and you're imagining what's on the other side of the door. He said, you have to walk through the door and then what you'll discover is not what you're imagining. You'll be doing it, not thinking about it. So those in the mountains don't notice it or understand it. I mean, think about the difficult moments during this session thus far. When you've had a, a whimper or a whisper <clears throat> of that thought, or maybe it was on, in full volume, I don't know if I can do this. And then just reflect, what were you doing in that moment of doubt? Doubting. What were you thinking about, you know, when you were thinking about not being able to do it? Thinking about not being able to do it. <laughs> Is there a relationship between having the thought and the sense of what I can and cannot do? Yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> Just in case we're sure about this. <laughs> If you're not sure, check it out. <laughs> Someone in the mountains does not notice or understand it. And Dogen says, in the mountains means the blossoming of the entire world. Hallelujah. To be in the mountains means that the entire world is blossoming. I think that critic that Shibiyama was speaking to was concerned that this koan or the 
that woman in, in bringing out this koan is missing the blossoming, the beauty, the wonder, the warmth. It's not being missed. It is understood that for it to truly blossom, one has to be in the mountains. The Buddha held up a flower. How do we enter into intimate contact with that? What is the intimate language of that? What is it to be in that? Well, you can't bring yourself with you. You can't bring your ideas. You can't bring the word flower. You can't bring what you want. You can't bring what you hope will come to you. You have to go empty, clean, fresh. And so in our letting go, in our relinquishing, in our non-grasping, we are unencumbering ourselves so that we can enter in as an intimate person. So that we can blossom as and within the entire world. Dogen says, people outside of the mountains do not notice or understand the mountains walking. Because we're outside of it. We just see a mountain. You've seen one, kind of seen them all. Maybe you love them. Maybe you know the names of all the trees. Maybe you write poetry about it. Oh, that's great. Different ways of encountering the mountain. And then there's being in the mountain. My Kashapa, the flower, the Buddha, all blossomed at the same time. And in that moment, the entire world opened its arms, opened its face. All the walls fell. And what Dogen is describing here so beautifully is an actual, many actual moments in the mind, in meditation, beyond meditation, in practice, that is taught through the teachings, that is, that is cultivated, we might say, through practice, that started with the Buddha, that has come down to us thus far, it's not theoretical, it's not abstract. It has everything to do with everything. And then in that moment of intimacy, of intimate language, where the Buddha eye sees the unseen, and then inevitably there's a moment where we step outside of the mountain again. Because that habit is still so strong. And those habits come back and impulses, and thoughts, and beliefs. And, and so what do we do? We keep walking. We return to the cushion. We return to intimacy. We come back again. That's all. Dogen says, if you doubt the mountains walking, this is only because you do not yet know 
and fully trust your own walking. It is not that you don't walk, but that we don't yet fully know or understand our own walking. That's all. And since we don't yet know our own walking, we should fully know and investigate and study the mountains walking. So what Dogen is saying is, when we don't yet understand, we simply don't yet understand, that's all. And if we can sort of experience that, perceive that, understand that as an invitation, right? We, te- we tend to too often perceive that as the, the grade that you have received for your practiced effort, right? It's not a very high grade, right? We see that, that not yet understanding as a self, as something intrinsic, as something I either have or I don't. I don't, so I'm a dud. That's what our mind does. We're not at ease within our not understanding because we're doubting that we have all that is needed already present. And so we come back to faith, we come back to the teachings, we come back to the examples of the people around us, we come back to how many people have done exactly what you're doing going back for 2,500 years and faltered and doubted and questioned and started again. Too many to count. And so these teachings are offered to us really so that we can be grateful. So that we can be grateful. Because when we encounter our not understanding outside of a path, that's a hard thing. Because I just don't understand and I don't have a clue and I don't know what to do. But when I don't understand and I have a path, be grateful. Be grateful that you have a path. Be grateful that you do know what you can do. That you may actually be doing it, in fact. (laughs) How about that? So, this is how we express our gratitude. Is by bringing to life again and again this very moment that this koan presents us with here on this cushion, in this week, with each other, with our masks. A minor thing, really. I don't like it any more than anybody else. But it's a minor thing in the midst of a great thing. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, Dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.